0: When Chico Mendes was killed in the winter of 1988, the fires in the Amazon rainforest were at an all time high. Paving crews continued to reach deeper and deeper into the forest, and more than 7,000 fires were burning at one time. The amount of smoke was so great that it inundated Brazil's major cities to the south, thousands of miles away reducing visibility so badly that major airports closed for weeks at a time. And the impacts of this burning were beginning to show. Unprecedented amounts of CO2 and other greenhouse gases were being released into the atmosphere, and the planet was experiencing record high temperatures, especially in Brazil. It was a truly catastrophic era in the Amazon. But when Chico Mendez was born in December of 1944, that couldn't have been further from the truth. At that point, decades before any major fires, the Amazon rainforest was a completely different place, where Chico and his people lived in harmony with the healthy forest. The state of Acre, where Chico grew up, is so remote that it was the last Brazilian state to be developed, truly off the grid. In the 1940s, it still contained numerous indigenous groups that had yet to even make first contact. It remained impenetrable to the Western world, and in many ways, it was paradise for Chico Mendez, at first.
1: In the late 1980s, I started working in Acre and became familiar with the rubber tappers, and I met Chico Mendez in 1987.
0: That is Dr. Marianne Schmink, an anthropologist from Florida who worked with Chico in the 80s.
1: I was there just a few months before he was murdered.
0: Dr. Schmink has been studying the people of the Amazon for 40 years, and one group in particular, the rubber tappers. And could you describe the people a little bit more? What what kind of people are they? What do they value?
1: So a lot of the rubber tapper culture is from northeastern Brazil, which is a very traditional culture in Brazil strongly focused on family, very patriarchal for the most part. I think family is is the key focus. They typically share food. So if you go and kill a large game animal, that meat would be shared among everyone in your extended family. And so those were the kinds of arrangements that over the generations kept them going.
0: She told me the origin story of Chico Mendez. How he'd grown up on a rubber estate named Cachoeira, which means rapids, as the estate was surrounded by pumping estuaries of the Amazon River Basin. He was weaned on simple foods like rice, beans, Brazil nuts, couscous, manioc flour, and wild game. Anything from armadillo to monkey. He lived in a pretty basic shelter built from supplies from the forest, living off the land. This simple life was all Chico knew as a child.
1: They know what the medicinal plants are in their backyard. They know which vines will give them something to drink in the forest. They know which fruits at different times and which fruits attract different animals at different seasons that they can hunt for protein.
0: Once he was big enough to start working, around the age of nine, he joined the family business, harvesting and processing latex from Brazilian rubber trees. Instead of sitting in a classroom and learning to read, He was learning how to cut incisions into the trees and collect the white gold that would be smoked and pulled into balls of rubber. By age 11, he was working full-time. But in interviews, Chico described those early years as an idyllic childhood in the forest, developing compassion for all the living things that made it whole. But really, life in the forest was far from idyllic. In fact, it was downright ruthless. Just surviving birth wasn't easy. Only five of Chico's 17 siblings survived infancy. And things did not get much easier after that. It was all work and no play on the rubber estates, harvesting enough to pay the rubber merchants that lorded over them like a medieval fiefdom.
1: Chico Mendes had been illiterate. He didn't learn to read and write until he was... Twenty-four, And the uh, traders didn't provide an education. They didn't particularly want the rubber tappers to be literate and numerate because they were able to manipulate the the bills uh, more easily.
0: It would take another 20 years, but Chico Mendez would eventually come to understand the vicious cycle of poverty that he and his family were stuck in long before the fires arrived trapped in a cruel system of indentured servitude that had kept generations of his people starving and in debt. This realization would inspire the work of one of the most important environmental activists in history.
2: Welcome to season two of Wildfire, a podcast series about fire in our world's natural spaces, hosted by Jim Aikman and me, Graham Zimmerman. In this season, we're talking about the Amazon rainforest and the raging fires that have wrought havoc on that ecosystem for decades. In the first episode, we learned more about these massive fires and the deadly conflicts surrounding them, including the death of a rubber tapper named Chico Mendes who was shot and killed by an assassin in December 1988. Chico's death had a huge impact at the time, landing him on the cover of the New York Times. But today, he's been largely forgotten. Jim and I had never even heard of him, and I doubt most of our listeners have either. So naturally, we were intrigued. We headed down to Brazil to investigate further and immediately made an unsettling discovery that the fires in the Amazon were not started naturally and did not serve any natural function in the forest. They were being intentionally set by developers who were burning down the forest and converting it into pasture. It turned out that this large-scale deforestation transformed much of the rainforest into a wild west of gunslingers and ash. So how were Chico Mendes and these enormous fires related? Why was he killed? And finally... What can this tell us about the past, present, and future of the rainforest? In this episode, we're going to continue investigating Chico's life, starting at the beginning, his birth and his early years in the forest as a rubber tapper. And Jim and I will journey upstream to visit a modern rubber tapper estate that is still managed by one of Chico's cousins, a man witnessing the devastation of the forests alongside the lifestyle of tappers today. Thank you for joining us on this season two of Wildfire. As Jim and I drove our rented 4x4 truck southwest out of Rio Bronco, the city quickly faded. The roads deteriorated, and civilization was replaced by rolling grasslands spotted with cows. In all directions on the horizon line, we could see a distant ocean of trees. From our research, we knew that those forests in which Chico grew up were composed of a highly diverse selection of trees estimated at over 16,000 species across the Amazon basin. But there was one in which we were most interested, the rubber tree. To the untrained eye, they may not appear unique when walking through the forest. But when a sliver of bark is removed, it reveals a feature that makes these trees one of the most valuable parts of the standing forest. From these cuts oozes a milky white liquid known as latex. The process of harvesting latex is called rubber tapping, and in the Amazon it is still practiced to this day, particularly on a series of reserves around the state of Acre. This is where Jim and I were headed, to a reserve named after Chico. Uncured latex is elastic and waterproof. It has a rich history and was used extensively by indigenous communities, particularly in their construction of footwear and bags. And when Portuguese expeditions arrived in the 1700s, these indigenous communities taught them about this unique substance. The Portuguese saw its potential economic value and brought it home, kicking off the start of the rubber trade. But it was not until 1839 that rubber had its first practical application in the industrial world. In that year, Charles Goodyear accidentally dropped rubber and sulfur onto a hot stovetop, causing it to char like leather yet remained plastic and elastic. The process once refined became known as vulcanization, and it dramatically increased the economic applicability and the value of the raw material. Suddenly, as parts of the world were starting to engage with the Industrial Revolution, it had a durable, elastic, and waterproof material that repelled electricity. Demand exploded. In Europe and the United States, it was used in tires, surgical equipment, swim caps, chewing gum, rubber bands and shoes. It became known as rubber when it was sold as pencil erasers, and that name stuck. This created huge opportunities in the Amazon, and it totally changed the social and political stage. New cities sprung up overnight, featuring some of the most advanced urban engineering available at the time, all to support the burgeoning rubber trade. The Amazon rainforest was on the economic map, and there was money to be made. Back in the present day, Jim and I wanted to see this process of tapping for ourselves. So we headed to a modern-day rubber estate to visit an active rubber tapper, one of Chico's cousins and closest friends. We had been directed down an unmarked dirt road to reach the Chico Mendez Extractive Reserve. It was raining hard as we slowly crept down the road that was deep with mud. Occasionally, we got out to inspect tricky sections of road, all the time trying to ignore the potential ramifications of getting stuck. The entrance to the reserve wasn't marked with a sign, but with a shift from sparse trees and cow pastures to overwhelming vegetation and a dramatic change in temperature as we entered the standing forest's understory. Shortly after, we arrived at the home of Raimundo Mendez, Chico's cousin, who is the caretaker at the reserve. His home was a simple house, sitting in a small clearing and built of planks harvested from the surrounding forest. He greeted us a quiet 75-year-old man with a drawn face covered by an unkempt beard. His hands, calloused and strong, showed that much of his life had been spent working hard in the forest. But his lack of concern about two young Americans arriving at his door showed a deep confidence in the world. Quickly after arriving, he ushered us into the forest and to visit trees from which he harvests rubber. The voices you'll hear are Jim and Raimundo, Alongside our young friend, Lyleson, who is translating.
0: This is the first rubber tree in the trail. So he's showing us the first rubber tree on, on the trail here in his estrada. There are cuts in it from the ground to about six and a half, seven, eight feet up the tree. Um, looks like it's been well used, well loved.
2: Every tapper has their estrada, an 8- to 11-mile loop, along which they visit the same rubber trees.
3: Quantas árvores? Mais cento árvores. Essa. Okay, he can, work. 8, 10 kilos okay. he can work with about 100 trees in a day on this trail. Wow.
2: Raimundo was a man of few words, and we followed him through the forest on his well-worn trail as he tapped the trees for latex. As he walked, it was clear that he was intimately familiar with the path. To harvest the rubber, the tappers cut a V-shaped lesion into the bark of the tree, below which they attach a small bucket to capture the latex, which bleeds out as thick white milk. These methods of harvesting from the rubber trees are sustainable, giving the trees time to heal between harvests. To my untrained eyes, it looked like a lovely existence, at one with the forest. But it was this work that was so heavily leveraged for an economic gain during the Industrial Revolution. And as we looked at Raimundo's home and his lifestyle, it was clear that he and his community had missed out on those gains. We knew that Raimundo had been on the front lines to save the forest, alongside his cousin Chico. But now he was carrying on a quiet existence in the forest, having returned to his rubber trees and his traditions.
3: Salutar significa dizer bom, Mm saudável, né? Uh Raimundo say he he feels very proud of living here because he was born here. He grew up working with the rubber trees. The only place where he feel he feels more comfortable living in. He said something about violence and the violence it was it was before, before they got this place. I mean the people who was trying to take over the land And one of the things that he likes to live here is because here he can breathe the natural air. He can eat eat everything that he wants that they grow here. This is the only place that he wants to live forever.
2: What we saw with Raimundo shared a beautiful process. But his lifestyle didn't line up with the story of development and excess associated with the rubber boom. Dr. Schmink had some key insights as to this disconnect.
1: They weren't indigenous to that region. They were recruited from other parts of Brazil and brought into the Amazon um, by traders who controlled areas of forest that their tappers would exploit for rubber and provide to the traders who would then trade this through intermediaries to buyers in Europe.
2: During the early days of the rubber trade, barons came to power. Most did so by acquiring control over huge tracts of land and hiring their own private armies to defend their claims, acquire new land, and capture native laborers.
1: Power was really um, heavily slanted in favor of the wealthier investors versus the poor migrants who didn't, couldn't afford a lawyer, for example. So they made sure that they charged enough or supplies to keep the rubber tappers constantly in debt.
2: The lives of early rubber tappers were a nightmare. They lived at the bottom of the social order, known as serengueros. They were forbidden to marry or to grow their own produce, and they were denied any kind of education, forced to remain illiterate and enumerate, unable to even count. Thousands died every year from disease and malnourishment and Chico's grandfather was one of these Serengueros, having been lured to Acre with his family near the end of the first rubber boom. He scraped by as rubber barons became more and more wealthy off of his labor, and subsequently he was stranded alongside the rest of his community in the forest. This happened when profiteers made off with the seeds of the rubber tree and successfully installed plantations in Southeast Asia. This happened at the turn of the century and caused a 50% reduction in Brazilian rubber production. But in this impoverished and inequitable society, he continued to raise a family, including Chico's father, Francisco. Then in the 1930s and 40s, as Japan invaded Southeast Asia and the Second World War began, the Allied nations lost their access to the productive rubber plantations of Ceylon and Malaya, at the same time as their need for rubber, particularly in tires, increased dramatically. Their focus shifted back to Brazil, causing a second rubber boom to take place.
1: And so this second wave of rubber tappers brought to the region another generation of migrants, and these people now were in the 1940s, had some understanding of labor laws and rights, a little bit different generation of rubber tappers.
2: And it was during this rubber boom of the 1940s as the rubber barons returned to take their place, ruling over the Serengueros, and new ideas were flowing into the area that Chico Mendes was born.
0: As Graham and I left the Chico Mendez Extractive Reserve, I was definitely struck by what a modest operation it was. I'd expected some kind of headquarters, maybe an office with informational signage, something like the park boundaries in the U.S. But no, the vestiges of this reserve showed no signs of financial support. Nothing at all that suggested an ongoing interest in its survival by the city, state, or country. In fact, Raimundo looked kind of abandoned, left to carry out his days wandering the rubber trails with his machete and faithful Chihuahua. I realized that despite the fact that it was 2020, with all the modern conveniences I knew outside of the rainforest, life for the rubber tappers was still not easy in the Amazon. All this made me more curious about Chico's childhood, growing up in the rainforest in the wake of World War II, which sounded like a far cry from my upbringing in the suburbs of the American Midwest. I wished I could have seen him navigating the trees and doing his thing, but I'd have to make do with more of Dr. Schmink's history lesson.
1: He grew up in in a period very much like I described, when the rubber tappers were isolated from one another and controlled by the traders. Many of the rubber tappers also left and went back to their regions of origin, but there was a group that stayed, and they became, over time the traditional inhabitants of those forests. They became traditional people as they adapted and learned from the natives that were there and developed their own ways of using the forest.
0: And so so essentially, just as the generations rolled on, this became home for the rubber tappers. Exactly. But not long after World War II ended, the rubber business went bust again and the tappers were abandoned by the rubber barons, who saw the writing on the wall. They left Chico's family destitute, without a strong economic connection to the world market and no other way to earn a living. The rubber tappers were high and dry. Chico was just a teenager, but already working full-time. And it was hard work, walking 10 to 20 miles a day, five days a week, back-breaking labor.
1: These are not plantations. These are very diverse forests where you may, uh, rubber tappers have to have an average of 300 hectares, which is um, like 1,500 acres, in order to have enough rubber trees to make a living because they're so spread out.
0: It was a lonely existence for Chico. He lived on an independent estate, and the tappers were naturally territorial and untrusting of each other, competing for the same resources. So there wasn't much socializing. Certainly none of the shopping malls or bowling alleys that I grew up with. Even schools were outlawed until the 1970s. This lifestyle led Chico to be superstitious and somewhat guarded, knowing that every meal was hard won and could be his last. He created his own myths and legends about the forest, like his own kind of sacred religion and there was no semblance of formal education to teach him about the world. Yet. Almost no one in the rubber villages, in the forests, could read and write. That's Gomercindo Rodriguez, one of Chico's closest friends and allies, and a fellow environmental activist. You'll remember him from episode one as the first responder to the scene of Chico's murder. Chico Mendes, I always say that I think he had a light of his own. Uma luz muito própria. Gomersindo described how the forest had hardened Chico into a survivor, but how he still felt like there must be more than these narrow trails and towering trees. It was around that time that Chico caught his first break, a mentor. In 1961, when Chico was around 16 years old, he met a man named Euclides Fernandez Tavora. Tavora was a communist rebel that had fled persecution of Brazil's right-wing dictatorship by hiding out in the forest. He was a refugee of the political upheaval happening in Brazil at the time that mimicked the McCarthy era in the US. Tavora had learned a lot about the world, and he was ready to pass it on, and Chico was ready to learn. He asked Chico Mendes' father to let him teach Chico to read and
3: write.
0: Tavora took an early liking to Chico, who proved a quick learner, impressing everyone he met with his work ethic and quick wit. Tavora first taught Chico to count, giving him an immediate advantage in the rubber game. Even as a young man, when he was 20, he was awarded as a rubber tapper who produced the most rubber in the place he lived. Tavora then taught Chico to read by looking through old newspapers and communist publications, taught him some English and Russian by listening to radio broadcasts, and planted the seeds of revolution in his mind. He taught Chico about Karl Marx and socialism. Most importantly, he taught Chico about the larger world beyond the forest. And Chico gradually began to see more clearly what had trapped his people in poverty for so long. Okay,
3: esse
0: This learning to read and write with a communist militant led Chico to have his first notions of organization and labor union, which in the Amazon at that time did not yet exist and he remembered those teachings of the early 1960s. Tavora taught Chico the value of his labor and products and the rubber tappers' rights to the land that they occupied. Chico finally saw that the only way out of this horrible system was to pass on that knowledge, and the first place to start was schools. Chico Chico considered first that it was very important that the workers were united. The more I learned about Chico Mendez, the more I saw of his world, the more I came to admire him. This was clearly a special person who grew up in an environment that was so different from my childhood that there shouldn't really have been any connection at all. And yet, I related to Chico. I respected him, and I wanted to know more. In his 20s, Chico helped build 18 schools in the Chaparri region to educate the 30,000 rubber tappers in the area during the 1960s. It was a huge step forward for Chico, finally turning all of the ideas and lessons into action, and it was a huge step forward for the rubber tappers. But little did he know that a much more insidious threat was waiting just around the corner, and Tavora was nowhere to be found. He was on his own. In this
2: episode, we took a step back in time to the origins of the rubber tappers and the rubber trade. And within this history, we found a story of horrific human rights abuses, alongside links to our own lives. We found that the rubber on the backs of our pencils and in the tires of our cars is intimately linked with the story of Chico and the plight of his community. But thanks to the teachings of Tavora, Chico is set on a new path— in which he could visualize a new future for himself and his people. It was a testament to the power of education to drive change. But in 1970, just as Chico arrived at the first major threshold of his journey, ranchers showed up in his home state of Acre and began burning down the forest for cattle pastures. And Tavora disappeared into the trees, never to be heard from again. It is supposed that his Marxist past caught up with him, or that he was murdered, or maybe he had an accident. But one way or another, it left Chico faced with a choice. He could forget about what he had learned and do nothing while watching his home and livelihood burn to the ground. Or he could use his knowledge to galvanize his community and stand up to fight against the encroaching development and violence. And it was a choice that would define the rest of his life. The podcast Wildfire Season 2 is a production of REI Co-op Studios, Bedrock Filmworks, and Podpeak. The show is written and produced by Jim Aikman and myself, Graham Zimmerman, with additional production support from Chelsea Davis at REI. Editing, sound design, and theme music are by Evan Phillips.